I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last thirty years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. I mean the law copyists or scriveners. I have known very many of them, professionally and privately, and if I pleased could relate divers histories at which good-natured gentlemen might smile and sentimental souls might weep. But I waive the biographies of all other scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a scrivener of the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law copyists I might write the complete life, of Bartleby nothing of that sort can be done. I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable, except from the original sources, and in his case those are very small. What my own astonished eyes saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except, indeed, one vague report which will appear in the sequel. HPPodcraft.com that was the opening from Hervin Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener. What is a scrivener, you ask? Mm. Well, today I'm a scrivener, and as you can see, <laughs> a scrivener is an artist of the highest degree. What's happening? <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. Oh, is He that... was a scrivener in, in Mary Poppins. What? Does street art. You know, like that. And so that's what Bartleby does. He's a street artist. He doesn't, he's not a street <laughs> I thought he was a chimney sweep in that movie. Oh no, he has many jobs. He's a he's a chimney sweep. He's a scrivener. He like I don't know. He like sells kites. He does all types of stuff. That's like every time you see him, he's got a different job. Dick Van Dyke does. And scrivener in that context means a street artist. No, what do you mean in, in any context? Well, no, it's not. <laughs> Bartleby's a street artist. I, I mean, he is obviously a scrivener. <laughs> means street artist. No, a scrivener is a, a clerk. Even in this opening that we heard, it says. A uh, uh, law copyist or scrivener. It means that you duplicate... Law copyists or scriveners. Those are two different people. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't keep doing this. <laughs> I kind of wanted you to, though, in a way. <laughs> you, Even though I didn't think you were serious, it was genuinely frustrating me. So congratulations. A scrivener, uh, pre-computers or commercial typewriters would draw up documents, copy documents, proofread, edit. Yes. It's actually, I've worked most of my career doing things just like that. So it's likely that this would have been my job oh, yeah. if uh, I were alive in the mm. 1850s. By the way, I am Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, and I'm Chris Lackey, and you are listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're at hppodcraft.com, and now we are also at patreon.com slash witchhousemedia. All 400-plus episodes of the show are in your feed when you sign up for Patreon. Yes. They're there right now. Plus, you're going to get our comments show, which will be out uh, early next week. And also, we'll be doing a show on any topic this month. Yep. Well, actually, it'll be a listener-selected topic. We still need one. So, folks, tell us what you think we should talk about for that show. Yeah. It can be anything. We don't like anything you say. We'll come up with something on our own. <laughs> it's like, like when you're doing an improv scene. I'd like a location. A whorehouse. I heard laundromat. If you're an existing subscriber and you sign up for Patreon, we'll take care of canceling the old recurring payment. If you used a different email address for that account, let us know. 
Or if you sign up and a charge still comes out, let us know that as well. We're trying to take care of stuff as fast as we can. Just yes. email at witchhousemedia at gmail.com and we'll get you all sorted out. The old witch house media system will be active for a while, but it is something we'd, we'd like to phase out eventually. So please make the switch if you can. Enough business. Who was that reader we heard at the top of the show? That was one of our beloved readers, Wyatt S. Gray. Wyatt S. Gray is a actor, comedian, and voice talent, and he sounds great. I love it when he's on the show. I'm so glad to have him back. If you want to know more about Wyatt and what he's up to, see some videos, go to wyattcomedy.com. That's W-Y-A-T-T-Comedy.com. This story was chosen by Kieran Setia as part of our Kickstarter last year that got us to Providence. By the way, we have not forgotten about the Whisper and Darkness reading that it was a reward for that uh, yes. Kickstarter. Work continues slowly, but that'll probably be out this summer. Anyhow, Kieran Setia wrote us and he said, my story pick is a bit unusual. Herman Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener. Mm. It is not exactly weird fiction, but it has been anthologized as a psychological horror story, as in this widely read collection, Best Horror Stories, edited by John Keir Cross. Mm. Ramsey Campbell discovered it there and cites it in numerous interviews. Mm. It's brilliant, eerie, disturbing, and at times quite funny, also easy to make fun of. I would love to hear your take on it. Thank you, Kieran. I completely agree with his assessment of the story. Yeah, It is all of those things, except not too easy to make fun of, because I think everything funny in it is deliberately yeah. funny. There's no uh, characters doing ridiculous August Erlet things or anything like that. <laughs> uh, I think boo. it's pretty psychologically sound. I know, boo. I would also mention that Kieran, who recommended this, he teaches philosophy at MIT and is the author of the self-help book Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. Wow. Here's a synopsis for that book. How can you reconcile yourself with the lives you will never lead, with possibilities foreclosed, and with nostalgia for lost youth? How can you accept the failings of the past, the sense of futility in the tasks that consume the present, and the prospect of death that blights the future. In this self-help book with a difference, Kieran Satya confronts the inevitable challenges of adulthood and middle age, showing how philosophy can help you thrive. Wow. Seems pretty interesting and, and pretty relevant to uh, our peer group, anyway. Sure a does. Folks are going through this midlife crisis, but the themes there also seem somehow related to this story, specifically mm-hmm. the sense of futility and the tasks that consume the present. Yes. That it was an interesting tie-in that that's the work that Kieran's doing. Before we get into the actual story, let's talk about the author. Herman Melville was born in 1819 in New York City, worked as a school teacher for a bit until he became a sailor on a merchant ship when he was about 20 years old. He signed up to be a whaler, but jumped ship pretty fast and went to Boston. His first book came out in 1846, which was a bestseller. And his writing success allowed him to get married to Elizabeth Shaw, the daughter of a prominent family. His first true fictional book, Marty. Marty. <laughs> Marty. M-A-R-D-I, not yeah, that kind no, of Marty. No. Not based on his personal experiences, this was not very well received. Right. In 1850, he wrote Moby Dick, which people also did not like. Nope. It was with uh, his novel after that, Pierre, in 1852 that finally just kind of killed his career as a novelist. So he went on to write short fiction for magazines, and that's where this particular story comes in. Yeah, I read this story in my Norton Anthology of American Literature, Volume 1, back in college as part of an American Literature course, and I definitely remember that I didn't like it. Yeah. I still have my anthology, so I reread it in there, mm-hmm. and I see that my scrawled notes... How is my handwriting so bad at that time? <laughs> it's really strange. I was like a mature adult by that point, or at least yeah. I thought I was, but I'm still writing like a 10-year-old. But I see in my, my scrawled <laughs> notes in the margins that they're really intense for the first few pages, and then they kind of stop yeah. about midway through. So I think I was also a bad student and just didn't finish it, yeah. uh, which is too bad because... My notes were really interesting. There were such gems as funny sentence and comment on society, question mark. So, yeah, really, 
I clearly had a very astute... Some good insight there. Yeah, literary mind at the time. But anyway, I, I also started reading Melville's biography uh, from the Norton Anthology, and I didn't finish it because it was very long, but I'm going to read it this week, so I'll have more interesting tidbits oh, great. about him next week because he's got a really interesting life. But the first paragraph I thought really helped to contextualize this particular story, so I'm going to breeze through it real quick. Melville's life, works, and reputation are the stuff of legend. With very little formal education, he turned his early South Sea adventuring to literary use, charming readers in Britain and the United States with his first book, The Story of His Captivity by a Polynesian Tribe. Once established as a popular young author, he simultaneously began exploring philosophy and experimenting with literary style and form. Some readers were outraged, and for the rest of Melville's brief career, he was torn between his own urge towards aesthetic and philosophical adventuring hmm. and the public's demand for racy sea stories, which did not disturb its opinions on politics, religion, and metaphysics. Ah. By his mid-30s, broken in reputation and health, he ceased writing fiction, gradually passing into a stern and neglected middle age as a deputy customs inspector in Manhattan. During the 40 years he lived after publishing Moby Dick, he withdrew into the privacy of his family. He was rediscovered by a few English readers just before his death, but he was all but forgotten for another 30 years. Years. Finally, the centennial of his birth brought about a revival of interest. By the 1920s, literary and cultural historians began to see Melville as the archetypal artist in a money-grubbing century hostile to all grandeur of intellect and spirit. Mm. So he had a revival long, long time after his death. I thought that was a good way to think about the author going into the story because in his life there was this tension between doing what people were asking of him writing these adventures at sea mm -hmm. versus what he really wanted to do, which was explore some things that were more confrontational. And I think that ties in with many authors we cover here, right back to Lovecraft, yeah. who probably could have made a go at it in the publishing industry in some profession and not been eating a can of beans once a week. But he chose to withdraw and write about things that would not be appreciated until long after his death. Uh, this story was written in Putnam's Magazine in November and December issues of 1853. It was released into two parts. Yes, and we'll be covering it in two parts as well. Let's dig in. The narrator of the story is the unnamed lawyer. He owns a law firm and employs Bartleby as a scrivener. Now, even though the title is Bartleby the Scrivener, I don't think Bartleby's the main character. I think the narrator is firmly the main character of the story. Sure. He's not just the guy that comes and relates events that happen to somebody else. Bartleby is more of a, of a force, almost, that prompts self-examination. Right. More than he is a character. I mean, he doesn't really have much of an arc. He's the same person the whole time, you know. Right. But what is revealed about the narrator is, is what I find really yeah, interesting. Yeah, like Mary Poppins. She's not the main character of that story. Exactly. She comes in and she pushes people around and they change. She's a change agent. So the narrator talks about himself a bit. He says that he always thought that the easy way of life was the best way to live. Uh, he's an unambitious lawyer, he calls himself. Uh, he just makes a nice wage, not doing the non fancy lawyer work. He's never in court or anything like that. But I love his philosophy. It says, I'm a man who, from his youth upwards, has been filled with a profound conviction that the easiest way of life is the best. And aside from the fact that admitting he's an older man, this is the first thing the narrator says about himself. Mm -hmm. And I kind of laughed when I read it because I really have an admiration for that sort of attitude. Some people would call it like a slacker attitude. Yeah. But I think a lot of people can relate to that constant internal chatter where you're saying you're not doing enough. Why aren't you better? You should be doing X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. Why are you even relaxing while well, the rest of the world is working so hard? You're a failure. You know, it's this awful feeling of sure. I'm always behind and I'm not getting enough done. Mm -hmm. But I do know people who just kind of want to punch in at the job make enough dough that they can live somewhere and then goof off with the rest of their time. Yeah, enjoy their lives. And actually enjoy their lives. That is an admirable goal. 
I don't think that, that there's anything wrong with that. I don't either. And like I say, I admire it. And and if you read up on the job this narrator has, he says he's a, at that point, he was a master in chancery. Uh, and that was a position where you got a lot of money for very little work. It was, <laughs> it was something that was kind of uh, assigned to you as a quid pro quo for something else. It was like a coveted political position or something. You were basically just taking care of transferring estates and tying the transfer up in as much legal hell as you can so that everybody's <laughs> making money. And the narrator is mad because at the time of this writing, the position has just been eliminated. The Constitution has gotten rid of it oh. because so many heirs were like, we would like our estates and this is you're actually abusing people. And he's not mad for any idealistic reasons. He's very well aware that this is a dumb job. Mm-hmm. He's just mad because he was kind of counting on the money to keep coming in for the rest of his life. Sure. The view that I want life to be as easy as possible directly leads to the comic situation in this story because nothing is less easy than confrontation with another person. These offices on Wall Street, uh, they're on the second floor of a tall building. Uh-huh. So all of the windows just face out on the brick walls of other buildings that surround this building. Yeah, He actually says the interval between his window and the wall of the neighboring building resembles a huge square cistern. He's basically saying this place is a toilet. That yeah. It's clean, <laughs> yeah. but it's a bit stifling and depressing. It's a Joe versus the volcano kind of environment, I imagine. When Bartleby showed up, there were already three people working at the firm, and they all went by nicknames. So we've got Turkey and the Nippers. They are copyists. And then there's an office boy called Ginger Nut. Yes. We never get real names for these people. Bartleby is the only person that is named in this story because of his uniqueness. And I thought this was funny just because the names of the characters are funny. But also it's kind of an authentic view of office life because as many sitcoms have made hay with, you don't choose the people you work with. Mm -hmm. You all kind of get thrown together. And sometimes you can form really lasting connections and become a family, but most often there's a familiarity and an attachment at the same time. Right. You see people every day, or you might even work right next to them and not know their full name. There's just people in the office you go in your head, that's mustache guy. Yeah. That's, that's fast walker with the dockers. Right. I would just say this nickname thing really uh, rang true to me. Yeah. So Turkey is an Englishman who's older. He's in his 60s, like the narrator, and he's very focused on his uh, writing in the mornings. But in the afternoon, he gets really sloppy and angry. Yeah, because he's he drinks at lunch. Yeah, That's obviously what's going on. But Melville, that's a really comic part of the story because he just takes his time to tell you that the guy's drinking without saying that specifically. You know, yeah. He says, in the morning, one might say his face was a fine florid hue. But after 12 o'clock Meridian, his dinner hour, it blazed like a grate full of Christmas coals and continued blazing, but as it were with a gradual wane, till 6 o'clock. <laughs> and he goes on to talk about how strangely... Turkey's work seems to get sloppier the redder his face is. <laughs> and it again reinforces the impersonality of the workplace where something's like an open secret, but everybody ignores it. Sure. But it also sheds light on the narrator who is accommodating this behavior, yeah. even though it happens every day. He even says, he's so accommodating that he even says to Turkey at one point, hey, you know what? Why don't you just go home from now on after after dinner? <laughs> That's cool. You do good work in the morning. You know, maybe you're getting older and the guy won't do it. No. So he just thinks, all right, well, I'll give him easier work in the afternoon. (laughs) So he's just accommodating this guy's uh, abusive drinking. Yeah, he doesn't like to make waves. That's what we're learning about this narrator here. So we get a little background on Nippers, who's a 25-year-old with a mustache. Mm -hmm. The lawyer says he's the victim of two evil powers, ambition and indigestion. (laughs) Unlike Turkey, he's terrible in the mornings because his stomach is bothering him. Mm. But after lunch, after he eats something, I guess, he works well. He's like in a better mood. He feels better. He's great. What does he have any 
for breakfast. No, just coffee, maybe no breakfast at all. Is he drinking for breakfast? Is he no. a morning drunk? I don't think so. That would be funny, though. Uh, so in his agitation, Nippers is always adjusting the height of his desk. Also, he dresses very well. This character was interesting to me. I mean, the lawyer is lucky because he's got the one guy who's drunk in the morning and or drunk in the afternoon, but OK in the morning. And then this guy's angry in the morning, but flips. So it's like he only has one character to deal with at a time. Yeah. But Nippers, I got the impression maybe it is just his digestion, but I also think it's maybe he's angry to come to work in the morning. Oh. Because it represents some disappointment for him. That that thing about his ambition. Uh, right. He doesn't want to be there. That's why no. he habitually rearranges his desk. It shows discomfort with the job. It's just never right. He doesn't feel good in it. Right. But as the day goes on, he gets more resolved to doing his work. But the morning when you come into a job you don't like, that's the worst part. You know, you've had jobs like that before where it's like I got one right now. Driving in. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> well, I've definitely been this guy, though, the way he sort of hisses and mutters to himself and, yeah. and storms around the office. And I, I've been that guy. It's nobody's fault, but you're kind of curt with them anyway. Yeah. And Nippers is also doing side work at the jails. You know, he's kind of running schemes on the side outside of this gig. So it's what I was always doing, too. He's a, I'm a total Nippers until I'm a turkey. Until you're a turkey. Personally, I feel like I'm a ginger nut. <laughs> yeah. Well, who's this kid, Ginger Nut? Ginger Nut is 12. Yes. Which is really young. And he basically is, he's an office boy. So he goes on errands. He gets the guys in the office snacks and things. His dad is a cart driver. He has high aspirations for his son. So he's like, you know, I'm going to get you in here, like an internship at this office so that you can learn law and all this stuff. And you're not going to be a cart driver like me. And ginger nuts are the snacks, little cakes or cookies that everybody in the office likes. Mm -hmm. This kid goes and he's the one that gets them for the editors. So that's why they call him ginger nut. Yeah. Which is, it's not to be confused with Ginger Nuts, who got that nickname after the incident that caused his firing. <laughs> Ginger Nuts is referred to only in hushed tones around the office. It's like his beard is so dark, you wouldn't think. <laughs> you know? By the way, Ginger Nuts went on to become Carrot Top. <laughs> now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> That firing was the best thing that ever happened to him. Uh, now that we have the cast, we're going to get into the story of Bartleby. Uh, the lawyer needs help, so he put an ad in the paper, and Bartleby showed up looking respectable. So he figures, eh, you know, let's give this guy a go. So he gives him a workspace, but then he also puts it behind a little fold-out wall, like a little partition. Yeah. Though he puts Bartleby out of sight of everybody, he's sure that he is in earshot so that he can right. give him commands and tell him things. Exactly. He actually places him in his office. It's kind of a weird structure, but there's a big folding wall in the whole of the office. Yes. And the clerks, the, the scriveners are on the other side of it. Our lawyer keeps the other half as his sort of office, but he put Bartleby on his side of the fold-out wall and mm -hmm. then kind of fenced him in with tall cubicle walls, or I imagine they sort of look like a wardrobe. You know, like yeah. a robe's going to fly over the top of it. Yeah. The reason is, like you say, he wants him within his office just so he's got a guy at his fingertips. Hey, I need this copy, so run over here. That's right. But I thought the placement was important because if you wanted to pursue the idea of the lawyer being an unreliable narrator, as many have with this story, the fact that Bartleby is actually in his office contributes to that. You know, as, as if maybe he doesn't even exist. He's just something... Oh. Like the narrator's in there talking to somebody who's not even really there. Oh, whoa. Is a, okay. is a possibility <laughs> that people have suggested about this story. Yeah, no, but they interact. They talk. About True. Other people talk about and to this character, but yeah. it's related to us by the sure. narrator. I don't know if I, I don't think I support that interpretation at all, but I'm saying that that placement of Bartleby 
for those that do. That's, yes, that's important. I can see that. So uh, the lawyer says that Bartleby at first did great writing. He was very accurate and fast. Even though the work is tedious, Bartleby did it very well. Earlier, he talked about how the others were always slaking their hunger on these ginger nuts that the kid would bring for them. Mm-hmm. But Bartleby, he doesn't even pause for digestion or anything. He just He's that guy. He puts on some 90s trance music on the headphones, codes, <laughs> day and night. <laughs> Three days into Bartleby's tenure, he's hard at work doing fine until the lawyer calls him in to copy a paper and Bartleby responds, I would prefer not to. And okay, so now we're fully into what is odd about this story, him refusing to do it. But I want to be clear about what it is he's being asked to do, because it's not just to copy a paper. It's a specific part of that process that we don't have to do anymore, but I imagine was incredibly boring. Basically, Mm -hmm. once a document has been copied or duplicated, one person has the original, another person holds the duplicate. One person reads the original out loud, and the person holding the duplicate reads along to make sure there are no omissions or mistakes. So it's a form of, of proofreading. True. It's one of those tasks that are hard because it's not only boring, it requires all of your attention, right? Mm -hmm. You can't listen to a podcast while you're knocking this out. (laughs) You just have to focus on the words as they're read. Mm -hmm. They're probably a boring contract or something. Because if an error goes out there, you're in a lot of trouble. So, But I'm just saying it's probably the most boring aspect of the Scrivener job, which I thought that was important because this is where the behavior starts at the most boring task. And the lawyer is so sure that Bartleby will do it that he holds the paper up without even looking. He's just waiting for Bartleby to come over and snatch it out of his hand. Mm-hmm. It takes a second for him to look up and realize he's not even there because he doesn't even come up to him to, to make the refusal, right? It's from behind the screen yeah. he hears, I would prefer not to. And of course, the lawyer is gobsmacked by this. And he says, what What are you, moonstruck? Just take this document and do as I asked you to do. And then Bartleby's response is, I would prefer not to. <laughs> so Bartleby is not saying this for comedic effect. It, he thinks maybe he is at first, like it's some kind of joke or something. Sure. But he doesn't seem sad or anything. He's just very blandly saying that I would prefer not to. So Bartleby just goes back to his other work that he was doing. The lawyer just doesn't know what to do because he's like, I hired you to do a job and why aren't you doing the job that I... But he doesn't like confrontation so he just hands the job off to Nippers. It's because it only happened the once. He's like, this is strange but work's got to get done so I'll deal with it later if it happens again. So a few days later, a big job comes in and the lawyer needs all hands on deck. And again, this is the same kind of task except there are four copies of this document. His plan is they're going to get the checking done all at once by having every Scrivener come in, hold a copy. He'll read the original and all four of the Scriveners can check them at once. So he calls in everyone and they're all there, but Bartleby is not coming in from his desk. So finally, Bartleby breezes in and says, what is wanted? When the lawyer tells him, he says, I would prefer not to. He goes, why do you refuse? Bartleby just says, I would prefer not to. So the lawyer (laughs) says he normally would have just laid into somebody for refusing to work like this. But there's something about Bartleby that disarmed him and touched him, he says. So he tried to reason with Bartleby. He says, look, man, this is your work. It's helping you out in the end by us doing this. If you just go over these copies again, everything will be fine. And Bartleby says, I would prefer not to. So the lawyer clarifies. <laughs> He's really just trying to get this. And he says, so you've decided not to comply with my request? Bartleby doesn't answer. So I guess that communicates yes <laughs> to, to him. So not knowing exactly how to handle this, lawyer turns to Turkey and asks, am I making an insane demand? Is this request just? And Turkey says, sure, yeah. He asks Nippers and Nippers says, ah, kick him out of the office. We want him out of here. And of course, 
it's morning, so turkey is cool and numbers <laughs> is hot. Right. Uh, the lawyer asks Ginger Nut, and he says he thinks Bartleby's just crazy. So the lawyer tells Bartleby to do his job. Bartleby just shrugs and moves on. He doesn't know what to do. Still, the lawyer is just flummoxed, and he just hands the work off to the other guys. Again, it's got to get done. So he says, all right, one of you double up, and Bartleby, I guess, is going to go back to his desk. And the thing is, Bartleby isn't even worried about it. And that's the thing that's so disconcerting. Yeah. That he doesn't seem concerned about refusing to do this work. And it's, as a boss, you're so powerless when you can't intimidate somebody. Yeah. When when the person doesn't respond with fear when you if you threaten their job or whatever, then what can you really do? I yeah. got to say, I was thinking, um, this is a total... Seinfeld plot, yeah. by the way. This, this, <laughs> it is. I mean, I could just imagine Costanza, they come in and they say, Costanza, do this work. And he goes, no. And then he doesn't get fired. Yeah. He says, I just realized you could just tell people you don't want to do something. <laughs> they avoid confrontation. I'm at work all day doing nothing. I'm still getting paid. It just sounds like such a Costanza <laughs> it plot. It does. After a few days pass, the lawyer notices that Bartleby is around the office a lot. And the lawyer also notes that Bartleby seems to be eating nothing but ginger nuts. Even though these cakes are spicy, Bartleby remains passive. It's an odd thing. You would think that the ginger spiciness would influence his character. but No, just a kind of a boring, mellow dude. Uh, so the lawyer talks about this whole passive resistance thing. You know, he's thinking about it in, in, the, in the narrative. It's really kind of putting him in this pickle. It's hard for him to be mean to a guy who's just being mellow. He doesn't want to look like a jerk in front of everybody yeah. else. And he doesn't want confrontation. The lawyer feels a little sorry for Bartleby. And he doesn't want to fire him because he feels like he's kind of off of his nut. So if he fires him, nobody else is going to hire him. And then he's going to have a crazy guy out on the street. Yeah. Plus, letting Bartleby just be Bartleby doesn't really put him out much. Because Bartleby is still turning in good work. Yeah. He's just refusing to do some things. And psychologically, I found this to be one of the most interesting passages in the story. Because the lawyer has this employee flat out declined to do aspects of his job that are clearly aspects of his job. Sure. He was hired specifically for these things. Yeah. So the lawyer should fire him. He knows it. But as you say, that requires confrontation. Would also require some decision making that could possibly negatively impact somebody. We've all been there. Sure. And that's hard to do because we've got this guy who wants an easy life. So he starts to roll it around. I found this so interesting. He he kind of makes it a credit to himself that he's not firing him. Yeah. He goes, poor fellow, thought I. He means no mischief. It's plain he intends no insolence. His aspect sufficiently evinces that his eccentricities are involuntary. Here I can cheaply purchase a delicious self-approval. <laughs> to, to befriend Bartleby, to humor him in his strange willfulness, will cost me little or nothing, while I lay up in my soul that will eventually prove a sweet morsel for my conscience. So he says, you know what, the fact that I'm putting up with this, that makes me a pretty good guy. <laughs> and I have been in a few situations where I've been on the path to firing somebody, and I can definitely relate to the sort of self-bargaining. Sure. You have days where you are like, I got to take care of this now. And then you have days mm -hmm. where you go, oh, I don't know. It's inconsistent, which happens here as well. He'll, sure. He feels like, hey, I'm doing a good job. And then one day he's like, you're crazy. I got I to gotta get rid of this guy. So one day the lawyer gets a bee up his bonnet. He's kind of on the war path, mm -hmm. for him at least. And he asks Bartleby to do some paper comparing. And uh, Bartleby says, I would prefer not to. The lawyer says to Turkey, what should we do about this? And Turkey says, I'm going to go kick this guy's ass because yeah. it's after lunch. But the lawyer stops him and he says, don't kick his ass. It's a little, little too much. You need to cool it. And he asks Nippers. If he should fire Bartleby and Nippers says, well, it's your decision. You're the boss, man. <laughs> Turkey blames Nippers easygoing attitude on the beer that he had at lunch. Hmm? Little projection going on. there. Exactly. Too. That's yeah. But the lawyer is, you know, really angry right now. He's got he's got it going. So he's going to go to Bartleby. And then he asks Bartleby to go to the post office to see if there's anything that came in. <laughs> he says his line, of course, in response to that. I would prefer not to. 
And he goes, you will not? And Bartleby says, I prefer not. It's like he's daring you. If you compel me, then perhaps I will, but I would prefer not to. And yeah. the lawyers, I don't know how to compel anybody to do anything. <laughs> You're putting them in this really helpless position. So the lawyer starts yelling Bartleby's name louder and louder, trying to get a response out of him because he's just standing there. So he's a Bartleby, 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 <laughs> Bartleby, but nothing. So he tells Bartleby to tell Nippers to come in here and his response I prefer not to. He wouldn't even do that. And then he leaves. Yeah, he just goes back to his cube and starts working again. Still confused by all this, the lawyer puts his hat on and he just goes home. <laughs> Shall I acknowledge it? The conclusion of this whole business was that it soon became a fixed fact of my chambers that a pale young scrivener by the name of Bartleby had a desk there that he copied for me at the usual rate of four cents a folio, 100 words. But he was permanently exempt from examining the work done by him, that duty being transferred to Turkey and Nippers, one of compliment doubtless to their superior acuteness. Moreover, said Bartleby, was never on any account to be dispatched on the most trivial errand of any sort. And if even if entreated to take upon him such a matter, it was generally understood that he would prefer not to. In other words, that he would refuse point blank. Ah, and that seems like a good uh, place to stop. Yeah, I think so. I don't know why I didn't like the story in college. I guess I just didn't get it. Yeah. I think maybe I wanted plot-driven stuff at that period of my life, and I didn't understand the humor here. It, it does feel like, like characters in a sitcom. Well, I definitely have to admit that now, after years of experience in offices, this thing rings a lot more true to me. <laughs> Hey, what makes this a weird tale to you? Well, I think that there's going to be some more stuff with Bartleby that's going to make things a little bit more surreal and strange. Yeah, definitely the lack of a internal life that we... I mean, we just don't know much about him. No. And it's not paid off for us. Although we do get more and more crazy details. I think the weird thing in this so far is just somebody refusing to participate in the bullshit. It, it, it throws you when it happens. Sure. There's a there's an underlying code to behavior, and when somebody just says, nope, not doing it, it does kind of put you in a weird space, doesn't it? It does. I think we're going to dip a little bit deeper into the weird in the second part of this story. Agreed. I want to thank some of our new patrons. We can't thank everybody because you guys are coming in like a, a tidal wave. <laughs> it wouldn't be much of a podcast if we just said people's names all the time, but eventually we'll, we'll get to you. If Wyatt S. Gray were just reading the names... That would be interesting. Yeah. He's been such a good reader on this episode. Uh, I'm saying that he could read the phone book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we're, we'll go ahead and do this now. I want to thank Al H. Yes, Yorick D. Vetter. Denny Lawler. Paul Fricker. Jason Rainbird. Stephen Lemieux. Jeppe Mulek. John Buckhart. William G. Bielski. And a good friend of ours, Graham Eberhardt. Thank you so much for joining the team, guys. We're so glad to get this Patreon thing going. I hope it's going to be easy for everybody. Yes. And I hope more of you will uh, come aboard. That's all we've got for this week. We'll be back with more Bartleby next week. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.